Well, Merry Christmas, church family. Always great to see you here. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah. If you're new to our church here, we're really glad that you've chose to worship Christ this Sunday with us. And if you're kind of new to the Bible in general, the book of Isaiah is one of the 66 books that makes up the Holy Bible that we have. And Isaiah is, is in the middle of that, so you can kind of open up. The large numbers you'll find are the chapter numbers. The small numbers we'll talk about are verse numbers. But we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7. Now, uh, as we look at this, this passage this week, I just kind of want to set up the series a little bit so that you kind of know where we're going. But this passage that we're going to read today in Isaiah 7, as well as what we're going to see in Isaiah 9, are, are passages that we hear a lot around Christmas time. But we have, may have no idea what the original context to which these Christmas promises were made. And we, we read as we lit the candle there in Isaiah 7, verse 14, we'll read it again this morning, but it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. You might have already seen that on a Christmas card, right? The, the Emmanuel title, you've heard us say it here this morning. You maybe you have heard it in a Christmas song already. That's something we need to find the context of to see the depth of beauty that we find in this Christmas promise, in this Christmas light. Another one that we're familiar with is in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Alex read that to us uh, this morning as well. But for unto us a child is born, for a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these are great passages, and my hope and my goal, my prayer is that over the next three weeks, as we walk through chapter 7, 8, and 9, that we find the, the beauty behind this, the context behind it, because I think it's going to give us a deeper, richer love for God, and a deeper, richer faith in His promises that have been made, and His promises that have been kept. Now, this whole series, Christmas Lights, really can be summed up in one verse that you find in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And that's why we're calling it Christmas lights. So we're going to talk about darkness, specifically today, but in each one of these chapters, it highlights the darkness of our world, the brokenness of this world, how sin has has broken and, and, and deformed things from the way that they were meant to be. And yet, God in his goodness and his grace has shined a bright light that we remember at Christmas time. And so, let's settle in today in Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, to get that context. This is what the word of the Lord says. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jasub, your son, at the end of the conduit at the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and 
Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because of Syria and Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, they have devised these evil schemes against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it. Let's conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabel as king in its midst. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not come to pass. It shall not stand. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to King Ahaz and said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or the grave or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She'll call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good, for the boy who knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land at whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days that have not been seen since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Pray with me this morning. Oh God, would you instruct us by your holy scriptures today? We ask uh, by your grace you would enlighten our minds, that you would cleanse our hearts. Help us with this reading. Lord, help us with our understanding, our meditation on your word today, so that we can wholeheartedly embrace these things that you have revealed to us through your word. And Father, I ask that we would not only hear your word, but Lord, would you help us to keep it? Now as we unpack God's word this morning, would you pray silently to him, asking him to enlighten your mind and your heart to understand and to believe his truth. Pray that right now. you pray for me also that the words of my mouth uh, would be pleasing to the Lord and helpful to you as you love and follow Christ this Christmas. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, like every Sunday, we pray that you would be glorified uh, as you strengthen the saved and as you save the lost to the glory of your name. Amen. All right, well, there's a gentleman that some of you may be familiar with, but Henry Longfellow. Sounds like a made-up person, but he was a real person, lived in the 1800s. He was actually one of the most famous, if if not the most famous, poet in America in his day. His poetry shaped American culture. Possibly uh, his poem on Paul Revere's ride was his most famous. And Longfellow accomplished in his day, in his time, what many poets never accomplish— He was famous, 
and paid while he was still alive, okay? He became known as our nation's songwriter. So he wrote many different poets or poems and songs, but one of them he wrote around Christmas, and it's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Some of you may have heard this before or maybe even sung it before, but this is how it starts. Longfellow wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, you may have heard that one quoted somewhere, or maybe you've sung it yourself, but there's actually six stanzas. And when the company first published his writings, they actually cut out the three middle stanzas. And the reason why is because what happened in Longfellow's life drastically influenced how he wrote this poem. He wrote this poem in 1863. And what you might not know about him is in that 1861, his wife tragically passed away in a house fire. The love of his life died. His son actually went and fought in the Civil War. And while he was fighting the Civil War, he was shot in the back and he was killed. So just two years later, he's writing this beautiful poem on Christmas with loss and darkness and despair in his heart and in his mind. Longfellow was even quoted saying that Christmas has no joy for me. So the stanzas that we often cut out say this. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannons thundered in the south. And with that sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For I hate, for the hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now you might be thinking, well, that got dark real quick. That got dark real quick. Why would you say that? Well, some of us, we come to Christmas time, and we might not be having like a Longfellow Christmas, but we come to Christmas, and if you lived enough life, you start to realize that maybe, maybe there is a sense of, of, of darkness that is around Christmas time. And what we need is, a, a, is that Christmas light to shine in the midst of darkness. Some of us have wondered, is there anything more than just kind of the sweet, sticky, sentimental things of, of Christmas? Is there anything more than that? And what I believe through today and through this series is what Isaiah is trying to get us to see, what God is trying to get us to see is that there is far, far more than just that sentimental spirit within Christmas. That there's far, far more than the darkness that we might see or feel at Christmas time. There is a light that comes through the promise of Jesus Christ. So my prayer, my hope is that as we walk through this series, you find that great light of hope in Jesus Christ. That no matter where you are, how you feel in the darkness of Christmas time, that you would praise the name of the one who is praiseworthy. And so there's three ways in this passage today that we need to see the great light of Christmas. And the first, the first joy, the first hope that we see, first glimmer of light from this passage, is that light comes to the darkest of places. 
Light comes to the darkest of places. Now we're going to see darkness every week that we go through these passages. But in the very beginning, in, in verse 7, or, or chapter 7 rather, you see the, the deep darkness around the leadership. You see Ahaz, who's mentioned in verse 1, the, the king of God's people, man, he, he's not a godly king. He's not like the king you read about in Isaiah chapter 6, Uzziah. He's not like his grandfather. I mean, he is a terrible, wicked king. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, if you want to go read that for extra credit, you'll hear and know about the setting of this context. You'll know about Ahaz. And it says in 2 Chronicles 28 that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And this may be one of the most understatements in all of Scripture. His story is one of total disregard for God. Total disregard for human life for family, for community, for integrity. I mean, the highlight reel from his life is one that's filled with sin. He set up idols all around the land. He actually put bars in front of the, the house of God where people of God could not go in and worship in the temple. I mean, he murdered his family members. He murdered people within the, the city that were a part of his nation. He was a wicked king. We see darkness in leadership. But we don't just see darkness in leadership. We find darkness in the anxiety of the people. Did you see that in verse 2? The, the heart of the king Ahaz is shaking, and the heart of the people shook with anxiety and fear. Why? Why are they so fearful? Well, there are a lot of names, and there are a lot of towns, and there are a lot of cities, but there's kind of four main characters that you got to understand, or four main nations, in order to grasp and understand this passage and what's going on. You have God's people that are there, Judah, right? That's their nation. You have Syria, you have Ephraim, the nations that are close by, two nations that come into alliance, and they're going to go to war against Judah, God's people, now, there's a fourth nation that's mentioned at the end that we'll get to before the end of the time, Assyria. This is different from Syria, right? I know that's kind of tricky there, but there's Syria and then there's Assyria. And Assyria is coming on the scene as like one of the most powerful nations. And those are the, the four nations that you have to understand because what's happening is Judah is quaking in fear because Syria and Ephraim are coming to invade them. And when they hear this news that these two close nations are going to come and invade them, their hearts shake with anxiety before the Lord. So, so don't miss this. The original context for which the Christmas promise that we read this morning, that we saw on the screens, is made, the context is one of political instability and widespread anxiety. I mean, can you imagine being in a nation where there's political instability and there's anxiety that's widespread? I mean, hmm, can you imagine? That's the context in which these promises of the coming king are made. Oh, it's dark times, but there's a light that shines in the darkest 
of places. And this should encourage our souls so much. I mean, let this sink in. The king that I listed all this laundry list of of defects in him and sin and brokenness, he's the first one that hears the promise of Christmas. God could have chose the king beforehand, right? Or the king before that. Like Uzziah was a, was a way better king. Like God should have sat down with him and been like, Uzziah, because you're such a godly king and a good king, let me tell you this promise of this like, coming Messiah. That's not what he does. God comes to the darkest, most wicked king, and he gives him the promise first. Praise God for that. This is the joy of Christmas, that light shines in the darkest of places. So that sinful hearts just like mine can know the great love of God. To know that that light shines even when our hearts are hard against the Lord. He's still pursuing us. He's still making the promise of Christmas to us. He's still telling us, Emmanuel, God desires to be with us. Light shines in the darkest of places. So as we approach Christmas Day, be assured that your sin is no match for God's grace. It's not. And this, as we read this passage and we see the darkness of this situation, it should remind us of God's goodness to pursue sinners, even as they run from Him. The second truth that I want us to see from this passage is, if we do not stand firm in our faith, then we will shake with fear. If we don't stand firm in our faith, we will shake with fear. You see that at the end of verse 2 that we read. But then, in verse 3, God's going to highlight some of his goodness before the king to remind him that he hasn't left his people. He's not forsaken them. Even in the darkest of times, the light is still shining. And so what God tells the prophet Isaiah to do is to walk into the darkness and then proclaim God's good news, proclaim God's grace. So you see in verse 3 that the the Lord tells Isaiah, go and, and meet Ahaz. And then he tells him to take his son with him. Did you catch that? It's like, bring your son to work today for Isaiah, right? Like, just bring him along with you. And then he meets the king in the the conduit in the upper pool. And the reason why that's important is because King Uzziah, not King Ahaz, rather, he's getting prepared for the invasion. And so he's going, he's like, how much water do we have stored up? How long can we resist the darkness that is coming against us? In comes Isaiah to meet him and to talk to him. And he brings his son, and the reason why that matters is because the name of his son, your Bible might actually have like a little number, and you look down at the bottom. The name of his son means the remnant shall remain, or a remnant shall survive. And so the greatest fear that's stirring up in in the king's heart, his son, Isaiah's son, is, no, 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 no. Even if the worst case scenario happens, even if this invasion comes and these people come to knock down our walls, a remnant will remain because God will keep his promise that a king will rise from the line of David and reign forever and ever. Don't forget the light that shines in the darkness. So there's a reason why Isaiah's son comes with him. Now, as his son's standing there beside him, Isaiah starts to speak. And he tells the king in verse 4 to be careful, to be quiet, to not fear. This is all peaceful and restful language, like calm your heart down, rest your anxieties. 
Do not fear. But why? Why should I not fear, right? Like there's darkness right on the horizon. There's an invasion that is imminent right now. Why should I not fear, God? And Isaiah tells him, because everything that you fear shall not come to pass. Everything that shakes your heart with terror will not come to reality. It shall not come to pass. And then I love how God describes what makes the people's hearts fearful. Because in verse 4, he calls these two nations, Syria and Ephraim, two stumps of firebrands that are smoldering. You know, if we were going to put it in our modern day language, what he's saying is, stay calm because there are just these two burnout cigarette butts that are out there. You don't have to worry about them. You do not have to worry about them. They're spent forces. These two nations coming at you are just headed by mere men, and I will not allow them to succeed. I've set an expiration date on them and their kingdoms. So do not fear. God kept his promise. Within three years, Syria was crushed, and Israel fell within ten years after that. So by about 670 B.C., none of these things even exist anymore. The darkness that they were fearing would not last. The light was coming. God's truth was assuring them that what they feared most would not come to pass. Now, the application with this is think about these truths. Think about what God's trying to communicate to us. How often do you and I fear things that never come to pass? How, how many times do we worry or are anxious about things that never come to fruition? And not only that, how many of you have, have lost real sleep over hypothetical situations? How many of you have, have lost real relationships over hypothetical things that could happen or things that you were worried about? Right? Real stress is felt in our hearts and our life over hypothetical situations that may or may not ever come to pass. And what God's word is inviting us to do is to instead of trusting in ourselves, trust in Him. That we would make our faith firm in Him and trust in His promises. Trust in who he is. If we're not firm in our faith, then we will shake over everything in our life. We will be filled with anxiety if we are not firm in our faith and our trust in the Lord. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9 makes it abundantly clear. The, the unavoidable question in our life is where have you placed your faith? Where is your faith resting? If you're not firm in your faith in our Lord God Almighty then you will constantly shake as the trees do in storms. But what is faith? One commentator said, if we're going to take our faith and trust in the Lord, it's, it's more than just knowledge, although it has knowledge. It has kind of three components of faith. One, that you know who God is. That you've read the pages of Scripture, that you allow that to define who God is, and then you know that truth. But faith doesn't just stop with knowledge. It leads to trust. 
Faith leads to trust. I know this is who my God is, and so I'm going to trust in his strength and his power and his wisdom and his love. We talked about that just last Sunday. We're going to trust in what we cannot see. That's faith. But the third component of it is that we embrace God. It's not just a a mindset that we know the truth. It's not just a sight where we can't see, but we still trust. It is a heart response that we would embrace God and love him. This is what faith looks like. All that we would place our faith firmly in God, firmly in his promises, so that we are not shaken to and fro by all the craziness of this dark, broken world. We trust in God and place our firm faith there. Now the third thing I want us to grasp from this passage today is the reality that our, our greatest problem, our greatest problem might not be what we fear, but actually what we trust in. Our greatest problem might not be what we fear, but what we trust in. See, Ahaz feared the two nations that were planning on attacking him. That's where his fear was placed, instead of placing his faith in God. Instead of placing his trust in God, he placed his trust in other places. First of all, he placed his trust in himself. You get to verse 10 in this passage, and God in his goodness, his kindness, says, Ahaz, I know you're worried, I know you're anxious, but ask any sign and I, I, will, I will give it to you. As high as the heavens or as low as the grave, right? Anywhere in between. God gives him a blank check and says, I'm not asking you to take a step out in like blind faith. No, 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 no. I've given you these promises of who I am and what I'm going to do. And if you can't trust and believe in that, then ask anything, Ahaz, and I'll do it for you. And when you read... Ahaz's response, you might think that sounds kind of holy, right? God says you can have a sign, and he's like, no, I don't need a sign. And he actually quotes a passage in Deuteronomy, don't test the Lord. But the reality is the reason why he doesn't want that is because he's trusting himself. He knows if he asks God for a sign and God fulfills that sign, then all the credit, all the glory, everything goes to God and not Ahaz. And Ahaz has been plotting. Ahaz has been like planning and trying to work his way so that he remains in control around this whole situation. And so he says, I will not ask. He's trusting in himself so that he would get all the glory. But he's also trusting in Assyria. That's that fourth nation that is briefly mentioned in the passage that we read. But, but Assyria is that major nation and he has come into like this alliance with him. Like I said, you can go back to 2 Chronicles 28 and you can read about it. But he hears these nations are coming. How can I stop these nations from invading? And his first step is not in faith towards God to pray. He's like, nope, I need to jump past the prayer stage, go straight to how I can solve it. So he goes and he makes this alliance with Assyria. And what God is warning him is, no, 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 no. You've placed your trust in Assyria and they are coming to crush you. You think they're on your side? They're not on your side. I'm the only one that's on your side. And so the very thing that he is trusting in is the very thing that's going to hurt him. It's going to hurt him. So what God does is he says, I'm going to give you a sign either way. Whether you ask for one or not, king. And so he gives him this 
this promise that we've read multiple times today. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God chooses the sign. And he could have chose lightning bolts that come down to hit these other nations that are invading them, but he doesn't. You know, that might have come in handy, but he doesn't. What he says is, my saving presence is going to come in what you don't even think about, the improbable. Now, this is a, a beautiful passage in verse 7, or verse 14, but it's not easy to understand. You see, there's more to verse 14 than meets the eye. The prophecy came true in one of two ways. First, in the context, he's talking about a child that's, that's going to be born that before the child is old enough to know right and wrong, these nations which he fears are going to be desolated, going to be wiped away. He's like, it's only going to be a few years. There's going to be a child that's going to be born, and before that child is old enough, the very thing you fear will cease to exist. But secondly, this is a prefigure, the birth of Christ. The Apostle Matthew quotes this Old Testament passage with eye on Jesus. You see, all heroes, all institutions, all events in the Old Testament, these are only foreshadows of what would be to come in the Messiah. Matthew saw in Isaiah's prophecy that Emmanuel, God with us, would be the ultimate salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. You see, we face far more hostile powers than, than Syria and Ephraim. We face the alliance of sin and death. And so Christ comes to defeat our greatest enemy. Christ comes who is literally Emmanuel, God with us. Whereas the son that was born in the time of Ahaz, this was just a reminder that God hasn't left his people. That God was there with them in their darkest of times. That Christ comes literally being the God-man to come to earth in order to show us the Christmas light. To give us the Christmas hope that we long for. To defeat our enemy of sin and death that had an alliance together. And Jesus came not just bringing temporal salvation, but eternal salvation. This is the beauty. This is the hope of this passage gives us. Now what we have to grasp and understand as we think about this is remember, his greatest fear wasn't his problem. It wasn't his greatest problem. His greatest problem is what he trusted in. He trusted in himself and he trusted in Assyria. And those things that we try to raise as the ultimate and put our hope in those things, when they're not the ultimate, they ultimately fail you. They do. They will not help you. They will hurt you. And God is telling Ahaz this. He's saying, what you're hoping in will not help you. It will hurt you. If you want to hear how it hurts them, then read the rest of chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8. As Assyria comes in there and wrecks havoc on God's people. You see, the same is true for us today. If we put our ultimate hope in anything other than the ultimate, it will not help you. It will hurt you. For some of us, 
politics has become, the new religion. If we can just get the right leader in office, then we'll find peace. But has that ever worked? I'm not playing, downplaying political leaders. I'm thankful for them. But is our ultimate hope founded in that? Because if so, we will be hurt by it, not helped by it. For some of us, we thought technology would be that, that ultimate saving grace that would help us. How much time we would save if we just had better technology. We'd have so many more conveniences for our life. And yet, what has happened? Our time has been absorbed by these time-saving devices. The flow of information that we have hasn't bred security in our hearts. What is bred anxiety and fear? Money is unstable. Fame you will never find rest in. All of those things, if we make it our ultimate and our trust rests there, we will be hurt by those things and not helped by them. So what is it that we trust in? Do we trust in God or ourselves? Are we looking to the, the non-ultimate things to give us ultimate hope? Or would we use Christmas as a time to examine our hearts and our spirits? To ask ourselves where our faith is placed, where our trust is placed, and may it be placed in the Lord. Longfellow's poem that I read at the beginning was depressing. But as he talked about hearing those bells being mocked by the sadness of this world, the last stanza, as he closed the poem, said this. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong will fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. This poem speaks of darkness in his day, but it does not end with darkness. It points to his great hope of the light of Jesus Christ. You see, the Christmas bells ring loud and clear that God is not asleep. God is not dead. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So let our hope, let the light that we find be in Christ this Christmas, even in the darkest of moments. For he is Emmanuel, God with us. Bow your heads with me. This morning you might feel like darkness is overcoming you, but Christ came to break those chains of sin and darkness and give to you light. Jesus, we read in the Gospels, let the darkness overwhelm him on the cross so that he could defeat sin, death, and the grave. For he is Emmanuel, God with us. And then he invites us to place our faith in him so that we wouldn't have to shake in fear of our sins or death. He calls us to trust in him for he's trustworthy. He's the ultimate who will not fail us or hurt us. And so if you have not trusted in Christ, would you come to him today? Remember, the light comes in the darkest of places. Your sin will not prevail over God's goodness and grace. So confess your sins and know that God has come to shine light in the darkness. Oh Lord, we praise you that light has come to the darkest of places. The promise of Christmas came first to an evil king and it comes now to our sinful hearts. 
So let us place our faith in you, Lord, that so we wouldn't be filled with fear. Would you be our trust because you are the ultimate. Lord, may we never look on other things to give us what you alone can give. Bring light and life to us today, we ask and pray. Amen. Church family, as we hear God's word, we respond to God's word. So I want you to stand now and I want you to sing, lift your voices up and praise to the one who is worthy and ultimate. That you would worship him both this Sunday, but all of Christmas. Let's respond and worship to him now.